Thank you, our Father, for the Holy Word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, so that we might know your truth and that we might purpose to live it to your glory and honour through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This epistle, which we call Ephesians, was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome around 61-62 AD. Though verse 1 says that it's written to the saints in Ephesus, the, the earliest manuscripts we have don't mention Ephesus at all. And nor are there any personal greetings in the letter, which you would expect from Paul if he wrote specifically to the Ephesians, whom he knew and loved so well. All the evidence, therefore, is that this is a circular letter. Certainly written to the saints in Ephesus, but written also to the churches in Asia, what we would now call Turkey. The dominant theme in the letter is cosmic reconciliation in Christ. Everything that was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. For sin not only alienates creature from creator, it also disorders all of creation itself. What was created perfect and God called good is now broken and groaning, waiting for redemption, waiting for recreation in Christ Jesus. As far as Israel was concerned, despite the fall and the rebellion of mankind, that God was still Lord of the universe. And their obedience to him in law and temple worship was the clearest expression of that. As for the nations, we the Gentiles, without the law and the temple, we were entirely excluded from citizenship in Israel, being without hope and without God in the world. The bottom line is that there remains a conflict between the Lord God and the powers of Satan. And if that's not always clear to our Western mindset, it was certainly clear to the Christians scattered throughout Asia and centred in Ephesus. For out of Ephesus arose a cult and a culture ensconced in magical practices. And theirs was a worldview that believed the spirit realm could be manipulated through amulets and incantations. If the Ephesian Christians were to side with the Lord God, then they needed to be confident that supreme power came not through magical means of manipulation, but from an intimate relationship and identification with the Lord Jesus Christ against the powers of this age. And Paul sets out to establish the basis of that relationship from the very beginning of the epistle. In the very first verse, he describes himself as an apostle, that is, as one sent by Christ Jesus himself, not independently of God the Father, but according to the Father's will. All that God purposes, he accomplishes through Christ Jesus whether that's creation, redemption, reconciliation, or cosmic recreation. 
All that we receive comes to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's as simple as grace and peace, which we read of in verse 2, or as profoundly expansive as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that Paul introduces in verse 3. Every blessing that we receive comes to us from God in and through Christ Jesus the Lord. And none of that happened because of anything that we've done. Our position in Christ Jesus, our blessing because of Christ Jesus, happens because he chose us and not vice versa. We know that's true because the choice wasn't made when we were born. It wasn't made when we were baptised or confirmed. It wasn't even made when we first chose to trust God. The choice was made by God himself long before all of that. Have a look at verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Now, whatever else that means, at the very least, it must mean that we've done nothing to deserve that. We weren't even born, let alone even thought of, by anyone other than God. Just as our parents chose to love us even before we were born, so too God has chosen to love us way before that, even before the creation of the world. And if you're tempted to think that God chose us because, well, he knew that we would be especially good and deserving people, then I have to tell you that that's not true either. All the evidence says that we're not especially good or deserving. We came into this world no more or less fallen than anyone else. And God did not rescue us by introducing himself to us as if to a stranger. God rescued us by making we his enemies to be his friends. God did not rescue us by throwing a lifeline to a drowning man. God rescued us by raising us from dead in our sins to alive in Christ Jesus. And his purpose was not simply to befriend an enemy or bring the dead back to life. God's purpose is, as we read in verse 4, to make the unholy to be holy, to make the guilty blameless in his sight. Reconciliation with God is not only about the forgiveness of sin. It's also about the renewal of mind and spirit. It's about being transformed from one glory into another, into the full measure of the stature of Christ. And God does that, not merely by letting the guilty go free, but as we read in verse 5, by adopting us in love to be his sons. Again, through Christ Jesus. And again, through God's good pleasure and will. Is it any wonder then that Paul chooses in verse 3 to commence his doxology with praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder then that all that God has purposed and accomplished in Christ Jesus is, as Paul says in verse 6, 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given to us in the one he loves. Every blessing that comes to us is entirely a gift of God's grace. Whether that is, as Paul says in verse 7, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, it's entirely according to the riches of God's grace. And God's grace is not given to us in measure as we need it. God's grace is given, as we read in verse 8, it is lavished upon us. God's grace is not given begrudgingly, it's given abundantly, it's pressed down, it's full, it's overflowing. And his grace is sufficient not only for the forgiveness of sins, but also for much needed wisdom and understanding. For it is by the gift of wisdom and understanding that God makes known to us the mystery of his will. Now when we use that word mystery, we're usually speaking of something that's a little bit curious beyond understanding, perhaps even irrational. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he simply means that something previously not known is now revealed. And the revelation is not simply uncovering an unknown fact, but rather it's a revelation given uniquely by God's Holy Spirit to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, but to those whom God has chosen. And the revelation that Paul speaks of in verse 9 is that all of God's purposes of blessing are given through Christ Jesus to those who are in Christ Jesus. For what God purposed in eternity, he promised in Genesis. What he started in Egypt, he brought to fruition in Israel. What he accomplished at the cross, he confirmed at the resurrection. And when Christ comes again in glory, to judge the living and the dead, he will at that time, as we, as we read in verse 10, he will put into effect the fulfilment of all God's purposes. That is, he'll bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. All of God's purposes find their beginning, their end, their fulfilment, their fruition, their completion and their consummation in Christ Jesus the Lord. And if you've forgotten where we fit into that plan, then Paul reminds us in verse 11. For again, he says that in Christ we were chosen. Our predestination was in conformity with the purpose and plan of God's will. Now certainly that happened, as Paul says in verse 4, so that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. But ultimately this was never about us. This was always about God's glory. For as Paul says in verse 12, God's purpose and will for us was accomplished in Christ Jesus so that we might be for the praise of his glory. God is worthy of glory and praise. It's simply because of who he is. As the four living creatures of Revelation never stop saying, 
day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And God is also worthy of glory and praise because he's the creator of all things. As the 24 elders say, laying their crowns before the throne of God, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so too the Lamb of God is worthy, for angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand, encircle his throne, and with the living creatures and the twenty-four elders, sing in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And ultimately, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them will sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And we, having been chosen in Christ, are heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, having been adopted as sons through faith in Christ Jesus the Lord. And our inclusion happened, as we read in verse 13, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, when we believed that gospel. And at that moment... What God had purposed in eternity became a reality in time. At that moment, we were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. At that moment, we became a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old passed away and the new came. At that moment, as Paul says in verse 13, God marked us with the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took up residence in us, making us God's holy possession. And he set us apart for his purpose and his glory. The Holy Spirit is not only God's stamp of ownership, he is also the stamp of God's promise. And God's promise to us is that those he foreknew he predestined, those he predestined he called, those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorifies. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is, as we read in verse 14, God's down payment, or God's deposit, that guarantees our inheritance until that day. Until that day when all who are God's possession are redeemed. Until that day when God brings all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ Jesus. And again, all of this is, as we read in verse 14, to the praise of God's glory. Is it any wonder then that when Paul gives an account of our spiritual blessings in Christ, that he both starts and finishes with praise to God and the Lord Jesus Christ? And then he launches into prayers for the saints. And that's where we must go too, and we shall. But before we continue our worship and our prayers, I want you to think about 
How do you understand your own position in Christ? For how we understand who Jesus is and how we relate to him, it makes all the difference as to how we live our lives as Christians in the world. If, for example, we see our salvation as anything less than God's sovereign choice in eternity, then we might think that in a way we're co-redeemers with God, that we've chosen him as much as he's chosen us. And though such a notion may flatter us because it makes us agents of our own salvation, it also reduces God to partnership status in a cooperative relationship. And as a result, God will be less than worthy of all praise and glory and honour. And we shall be less than secure in a relationship that depends on our righteousness as much as God's. Heaven help us. How we understand our position in Christ also makes a difference as to how we understand the nature of salvation. So if, for example, we think that being in Christ is simply a metaphor for believing in God, then God becomes generic. Christ becomes simply one expression of who God is, and the cross becomes simply one example of heroic self-sacrifice. Discount the uniqueness, the honour, the glory, and the majesty of Christ Jesus the Lord, and we reduce the gospel from an announcement of good news to all mankind to a mildly curious event that happened on the edge of the Roman Empire in the first century. If being in Christ is simply a metaphor for believing in God, then going into the world to preach the gospel makes no sense at all, let alone laying down our lives for the sake of Christ. How we understand our position in Christ also makes a difference as to how we practice religion and life. If all of God's purposes find their summation, their completion and their perfection in our salvation, then we shall understand God as being there to serve us. His primary purpose in life will be our happiness. And when life deals with suffering and misery, as it will, that'll be his failure, that'll be his fault. When we come to church, we'll think we're doing God a favour. We'll come to receive a blessing rather than to be a blessing. If the music, the service, the sermon or the people don't suit us, then we'll find a place elsewhere that meets our needs. In short, knowing full well the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, anchors our salvation in God's mercy and grace and rescues us from the despair of our sin and the self-righteousness of our pride. For Christ makes the cross not simply an inspiration for the strong and the heroic, but truly the good news of salvation for the weak and the weary. And when we begin to understand that well, then serving God will be our greatest desire and praising God in the assembly of his people will be our greatest joy. 
And for all these reasons, we do not stop praying for one another. We ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that we may live lives worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.